Well, you know, in the first three centuries A.D., simply professing to be a Christian could get you killed. In fact, there are places around the world today where simply professing to be a Christian can still get you killed. Unlike America, where uh, professing to be a Christian won't even get you noticed, uh, because for the most part, people in our culture couldn't care less what you say you believe in. However, what will most definitely get you noticed in this culture is actually living the life that the word Christian represents. In fact, that will not only get you noticed, it will get you ridiculed at times, hated by some, and, and even at times persecuted. Why? Because the ruler of this world inherently wants to subdue the people and the message of Christ. Which also means if you've never experienced any resistance in your life from other people whatsoever in response to the way you live, the, the decisions you make, the conversations you have, the reasons that you give for why you do the things that you do as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you never experience any pushback from other people because of what you believe, then there is a reasonably good chance that you are either living a life relatively isolated from unbelievers, which is not a good thing, or you're not actually living the life that the word Christian describes, which is also not a good thing. Uh, pastor and author John Rice once wrote, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. Okay, you, you cannot live the life that Jesus Christ modeled for us, the, the life that we as his followers are all called to live. You cannot truly live that life and never experience any hostility or mistreatment or discrimination from other people. In fact, Jesus promised us that we would. He said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. His early disciples certainly understood that. The Apostle Paul wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the early church fathers understood this as well. Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the second century, The believing have in love the character of God the Father by Jesus Christ, by whom, if we are not in readiness to die into his suffering, his life is not in us. You see, it's a universal truth. For all believers across all of the ages, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Okay, the idea that we can somehow live as Christ has called every single one of his followers to live and yet somehow never be at odds with the culture around us, that is a complete and utter fallacy. It's not only been understood, by the way, by his followers 
throughout the ages as we've seen, but it really needs to be understood by his followers today because there is nothing about what Jesus or his followers before us have said in that regard that has changed. The problem is most of us are not conditioned for conflict when it comes to our faith because we've been raised in a culture that until very recently has historically identified with the Christian faith, at least uh, culturally, if not always theologically. And because most people don't like conflict, right, because most people don't like to be uh, at odds with other people, I certainly don't, it feels much more natural to try and blend in with the culture than to live in such a way that is inevitably at odds with the culture like Jesus did, right? And so here's where the whole thing gets sticky because if everything that the culture around us did was purely evil and at the same time if everything that the church always did was purely righteous, then having to be at odds with the culture at times would be a fairly easy reality to accept. However, as we all know, the church doesn't always make good decisions, while simultaneously the unbelieving world can do some really great things at times. And so again, this is where it all gets muddy, because it isn't wrong for us to partner with unbelievers in doing great things for other people. In fact, we should do that. It also isn't wrong for us to call out the inconsistencies between the church's words and the church's actions. We should do that as well. The fact is, the truth is, there have been times when I've personally seen non-Christians act more like Jesus than Christians. Which makes it very easy for us to justify a lifestyle of solidarity with the culture around us while vehemently criticizing and even rejecting at times the church of Jesus Christ, which an awful lot of professing Christians are doing today on an ongoing basis. But listen, if you are truly a Christian, whether you like it or not, you do not belong to the culture. You belong to Jesus Christ and his church. And as such, you have a mandate by God himself to lay your life down, persecution and all, for your brothers and your sisters who are in Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, we don't belong to this world. We belong to him and to one another and going to him outside of the camp, by the way, and bearing the reproach that he endured. That is a metaphor for leaving behind our love for this world, our love for popular culture and our desire for its approval and instead embracing the reproach of Jesus Christ and his gospel, embracing the disapproval that we will inevitably receive from the culture around us when we choose to follow him. And uh, of course, it's easy for us to say that we believe that. But what do you believe? Honestly, what do you believe? Well, a close examination of your own life will reveal the answer. Because look, if your life is never in tension with the culture around you, 
well, then maybe you don't actually believe what you think you do. Because again, Jesus commanded us to live a life that will most assuredly, without exception, find us in direct conflict with the culture around us at times in our lives. This is, this is precisely what the Israelites were trying to avoid, by the way, in our story, as we'll see today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Judges. And so, as we read this story, I think it is at the very least fair and, and more likely necessary for us to ask the question, what do you believe? Specifically, when it comes to the supremacy of Christ over this world and the cause of Christ for this world. Because if you truly believe what his sacred scriptures say about that, then our actions will reflect what we say we believe. And if not, well, then it may be time for us to reevaluate what we actually do believe. Because look, the Israelites professed faith in Yahweh. And yet their actions, particularly in relationship to the culture around them, those actions were sending a very different message. And I believe we are seeing the very same incongruence, the very same contradiction in many parts of the modern church today. And so we're going to pick the story back up where we left off last week in chapter 15. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Samson, the man who God had raised up to be the judge over Israel at the time, had taken for himself a Philistine wife. And yet the marriage was never consummated because Samson left the wedding feast in anger after being tricked by his new wife and her people subsequently losing a wager that Samson had made with them for 30 changes of clothing. And so in his anger, he goes to a town about 20 miles away and kills 30 Philistine men, arguably 30 of their best soldiers, and brings back 30 sets of battle gear, giving them to the Philistine men at the wedding, right? Not only to fulfill his end of the wager, but to send a message to these Philistines that he was not a man to be trifled with. And then he leaves his wife there and returns home still fuming over what they'd done. And while Samson returns home, his new father-in-law, believing that Samson has rejected his wife for good, so he gives Samson's wife to the best man at the wedding to be his wife instead of Samson's, which of course at this point Samson knows nothing about. Uh, and so I know that's a lot I just threw at you if you weren't here all of our messages are posted on our mobile app, uh, on our website, on our YouTube channel. So if you missed last week, you can go back and catch up with this story. But that's just a little background as we pick the, the story back up now at chapter 15. As Samson has now cooled off and decides it's time to go back and get his wife, which gets very interesting very quickly, as we'll see. Let's read it together. Uh, Judges chapter 15. We'll begin with the first eight verses. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. 
And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? They said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistine came and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. So Samson goes back to his wife's hometown, taking with him a young goat as a gift for his new bride, hoping to patch things up with her and to finally consummate uh, the marriage after such a rocky start to their wedding. A goat in those days was sort of the equivalent as a, of a really nice box of chocolates, right? Uh, it was actually a very sought-after gift for uh, the betrothed. And so uh, this is the same gift, by the way, that Tamar required of Judah back in Genesis chapter 38 before she would consent to sexual relations with him. And so in the ancient Near East, this was a prized gift uh, to give to your betrothed. And so Samson is attempting to put his best foot forward here to get his marriage back on track. And yet when he arrives at her house, his would-be father-in-law explains to Samson that he gave his daughter to Samson's best man. And so as a consolation prize, the father offers his younger daughter to Samson instead, to which Samson replies, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In other words, I may have overreacted at the wedding when I killed 30 of you people for tricking my wife, but this time you're going to get exactly what you deserve for giving her away to another man. And so Samson goes out and catches 300 foxes. It was actually probably 300 jackals. Uh, first of all, it's the exact same Hebrew word, shual. In the ancient Hebrew, that's the word for fox. It's the exact same word used for jackal, uh, which also, by the way, looks just like a fox. Secondly, jackals were much more common in Palestine at the time than foxes were. And thirdly, uh, where foxes are generally solitary hunters, uh, meaning finding 300 of them would be very difficult and take an awful long time. Jackals would hunt in large packs, up to 200 of them together. So it would have been much faster, probably made a lot more sense in the story for these to be jackals. And then he takes them in pairs, tail to tail, ties a torch between each pair, and he turns them loose. And of course, this was the time of harvest. So there was not only standing grain, but also the grain that had been collected. That's the stacked grain, not to mention the olive orchards, all of which were set on fire by these jackals that Samson had turned loose. And the economic damage done to the Philistines by these fires here really cannot be uh, overstated. Okay? This was an agricultural community. And Samson has just decimated their primary means of making a living. So, so if you uh, think if you live in an, an entire city of people uh, were employed by a single manufacturing plant, this would be the equivalent of someone burning that manufacturing business to the ground. Th this was a devastating attack on an entire Philistine community. And of course, the Philistines find out that it was Samson and their response speaks volumes about what they believed concerning this Hebrew man 
who had been empowered by God with supernatural strength because they don't even attempt to go after Samson. Right? Because they know exactly what he's capable of. He proved as much back in chapter 14 when he went down to Ashkelon and single-handedly killed 30 of their warriors, bringing their armor back 20 miles, carrying it back to the wedding party. So these Philistines are fully confident in what the Hebrew God is able to do through Samson. And so instead of going after him directly, they burn his would-be father-in-law and wife in response, probably thinking that this would end their feud with Samson since it was the father-in-law who gave Samson's wife away to begin with. But in truth, that just enrages Samson further, who's determined to be the one who decides when his personal war with the Philistines will be over. So he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. That is an ancient proverbial saying, an ancient idiom that basically means Samson mercilessly beats these Philistine men to death. This is a complete slaughter, right? And we don't know for sure, but there are scholars who believe that these were probably the original 30 Philistine men at the wedding, the same ones who convinced Samson's wife to betray him to begin with, right? The same ones who threatened to burn uh, Samson's father-in-law and wife to begin with, the same ones that Samson brought the armor and the weapons back to, right? So these were probably well-armed men that he just killed with his bare hands. And then it says he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. I just want to be clear, this wasn't Samson running away and hiding in fear, as some would have you believe. This was actually Samson setting himself up for the next big battle with the Philistines, okay? We have much supporting evidence that the cleft of the rock at Edom was the well-known cave in the cliffs above the Wadi Ishmael, which Samson would have been very familiar with because it's only about two and a half miles southeast of his hometown of Zorah, and it happened to be the perfect stronghold for someone in Samson's position because this cave is only accessible by descending through a narrow fissure, uh, a crack in the face of the cliff that is only wide enough for one person to pass through at a time. Of course, Samson wasn't stupid. He knew, or at least he believed, that the Philistines were going to come after him in mass after what he'd done to them. And so he wasn't hiding from them in this cave. Now, he was waiting for them to show up to this cave where they would have to come in one soldier at a time where he could easily dispatch them. It was actually a brilliant strategy for Samson who would be able to take them out one soldier at a time as they came in single file into the cave, except for the fact that the Philistines didn't come to the cave. Why? Because they weren't stupid either. They knew exactly what Samson was capable of, which means they knew that he could overtake them in this position. So instead, they go after Samson's people. Let's keep reading verses 9 through 13. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom. Notice uh, the Philistines didn't go down to the cleft of the rock at Edom. They send the men of Judah to do their bidding. And they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, 
so have I done to them. In other words, they started it. They said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And so they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So the Philistines make a raid on the men of Judah and explain that they want Samson brought back to them. And so 3,000 men of Judah, 3,000 men, right? Which means they're also well aware of what Samson is capable of. So 3,000 well-equipped men go to him at the cave and then they ask Samson what is probably one of the saddest questions by the Israelites in all of Scripture. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us. These are God's people. These are God's people, fully aware of who Samson is and what he's already accomplished against the Philistines. And obviously, they understand his capability to fight off an army. Otherwise, they would not have sent 3,000 men to find him. And yet instead of recognizing Yahweh as their ruler, they point out to the very men sent by Yahweh himself to deliver them that they are ruled by the Philistines, not by God. And so instead of asking Samson to come back down to Lehi with them where together they could overcome the Philistines, instead they ask him to come with them bound by ropes that they may hand him over to the Philistines. What a tragic resignation for God's own people to reject God's own power, preferring instead the power of the Philistines. Scholar and author Dale Ralph Davis says, Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. You see, had they allowed themselves to be influenced by the pagan culture around them for so long, for so many years, they'd submitted themselves to the pagan culture around them that the Israelites now believed in the power of the Philistines more than the power of God. They had more confidence in what the Philistines could do to them than what God could do through them. So they were afraid. They were afraid of offending the Philistines to the point that they were willing to compromise their own people and their own convictions so as not to be at odds with the unbelieving world they were living in, which is precisely the very same struggle the American church is facing today. I personally know people Professing Christians who think they're crusaders for righteousness by putting down the body of Christ for all its faults and at the same time lifting up the world for all its virtues. Listen, that is not being a crusader. That is being a coward. It is much harder to take a stand for Christ and his church in a secular, unbelieving culture than it is to make disparaging remarks about his church while bowing to the influence of the culture you're living in. The truth is, 
Christians who think they're being brave by publicly shaming the church are more fearful of being at odds with their culture than they are fearful of being at odds with God himself. And I, I just ask you why. Why are we so concerned about offending other people? Shouldn't we be more concerned with offending God? The fact is, the gospel is offensive. It is supposed to be. In many ways, the gospel is highly intolerant. It is supposed to be. See, there's no reality where you live the life that the word Christian actually describes without offending other people at times in your life. Jesus and his apostles promised us that would be the case in Scripture. Look, it's not something, by the way, that, uh, that we go looking for. We're also not on some kind of crusade to offend people every chance we get. No, the apostle Paul said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably, with all, Romans 12, 14 through 18, okay? We're not trying to be at odds with other people like it's some kind of badge of honor. No, it is simply an inevitability for all those who actually live the Christian life as modeled for us by Jesus Christ. You see, when Paul says in the, the passage we just read, when he says, live peaceably with all, who's he describing? He's describing all the people in verse 14, those who persecute you. You see, there was a natural assumption by the biblical writers that as you follow Jesus Christ, you will absolutely at some point in your life be persecuted. At times you will be hated by the world. Jesus told us that we would in John 15, 18 through 20. He promised all who would follow him that your life will inevitably be in tension with the culture you're living in as one of his followers, just as it was for him. Which means, if it is not, if you never experience any tension with unbelievers when you are outside of your Christian friends and family, if your conversations are never at odds with others because of your faith, if you've never been ridiculed or put down by other people because of your loyalty to Jesus Christ and his people, if you've never been put to the task of defending your faith or even having to answer difficult questions about why you believe what you say you believe, then it is probably a good time to ask the question, what do you believe? Because Paul says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before what? All 
things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent Colossians 1 15 through 18 preeminent means supreme all right surpassing all others the question is do you actually believe that do you believe in the supremacy of Christ over all others? Because if we say we do, then why do we compromise our message and our convictions to keep from offending the world? Why do we shy away from speaking the truth in love to people who desperately need to hear it, even when they resist us? Why do we avoid difficult conversations about faith and truth and eternity when people openly speak out against Jesus Christ and the Christian faith? Why do we remain silent when people twist the gospel to make it sound more tolerant or accepting of the very things Jesus died to cleanse us from? Why? The truth is, for many decades now, our American culture has neglected the gospel in favor of trying to make the church more culturally relevant. And in the process, we've become more in touch with pop culture than ever before and more out of touch with the true power of the church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it is expressed through us when we boldly allow His Holy Spirit to guide us through this life instead of allowing the culture around us to guide us through this life. You see, the church, the church was never meant to be a melting pot of ideas and alternate gospels where it's safe or okay to manipulate the message of Christ until it fits our personal preferences or the inclinations of pop culture at any given point in history. No, and yet that is exactly what's happening in many elements of the church today. And listen, I've said it before, people are coming up with all sorts of new theologies about which parts of the gospel apply to us today and which parts do not. And if you disagree, particularly if you hold to an orthodox view of scripture, then you're seen as nothing more than a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, arrogant simpleton who will wither away into the wrong side of history, forgotten and irrelevant. So you're telling me after 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, we've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political sensibilities of popular culture in the West. It is breathtaking how far we've allowed the church to wander from the teachings of Christ. Look, you either believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ in his word or you believe in the supremacy of our culture to decide what is truth. But you have to choose one of those two. You have to choose one or the other because according to Jesus, it cannot be both. Which also means if you claim to believe in the supremacy of Christ over all things, then you should be infinitely more concerned with what he thinks about your life than what anyone else thinks 
about your life. Right? The Israelites had strayed so far from God's word that they bowed to the Philistines instead of bowing to God himself. And so they got Samson to agree to allow them to bind him with new ropes to lead him back to the waiting Philistines. By the way, when Samson said to his fellow countrymen, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves, that wasn't for his benefit. You, you understand it was for theirs because he didn't want to have to kill his own people. And so once they agreed not to attack him, he let them take him back to the Philistine army who was waiting there looking for revenge. Let's finish the story then for today. Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hands and took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. Ramath-Lehi is translated literally as the hill of the jawbone. And when he was very thirsty... And he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called En-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. So the Israelites lead Samson back to Lehi where the Philistines come rushing upon him. But notice that even while an entire army of Philistine warriors is rushing upon Samson, something far more powerful is rushing upon him at the very same time. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men." It was a complete slaughter. And he did it with style. <laughs> I mean, this was an epic defeat. And once again, Samson not only performs a supernatural feat of great strength, but he also takes up the cause of God to deliver the people of God from their enemies. And the only part of this story that is more astonishing than what Samson just did is what the Israelites just did. They disappeared. Right? 3,000 men. 3,000 men of Judah lead Samson on a march back to Lehi. 3,000 well-equipped Israelites lead him back to Lehi. And yet the moment he finishes slaughtering 1,000 enemy soldiers, he's desperate for a drink of water, as you can only imagine he would be. So why did he have to stop and pray to God to supernaturally provide him with a drink of water? Why not just ask one of the 3,000 well-equipped Israelite men who were there for a drink of water? Because they weren't there. The moment the Philistines rushed upon Samson, they were gone. 
They weren't interested in helping Samson. They weren't interested in defending themselves. They weren't interested in fighting for God's cause, which was their own cause, because they were convinced the Philistines knew what was best for them. You see, the Israelites believed in the cause of the Philistines more than they believed in the cause of God. Verses 10 and 11, when the Philistines came to Lehi, asking for Samson, the men of Judah, without hesitation send 3,000 of their own to go and fetch him for the Philistines. Not for one moment did they question the cause of the Philistines to destroy Samson. And yet when it came time for them to fight for God's cause, they were nowhere to be found. Now listen, when it comes to the many causes of our culture today, some of them very noble endeavors to be sure, you'll have no trouble finding Christians lined up to help, which is the way it should be. And yet when it comes to the cause of Christ, which let's just be clear, is first and foremost the propagation of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we make disciples. All other good causes in this world are at best a means to that end. And yet when it comes to the cause of Christ, why do we have to coax one another into sharing our faith with unbelievers? Why do we have to have programs to get Christians to go out and spread the gospel? Why is making disciples of Jesus Christ seemingly one of the hardest things to convince believers to do? You see, our, our coffee shops and uh, restaurants and parks and walking trails, all of these places where people naturally gather together in our city, those places should be packed full of Christians sharing the gospel with other people they've invited to go with them. Our conversations should always be seasoned with the truth of the gospel and what God has done for us. That's our testimony. Our love for Jesus Christ in this world, a supernatural love that He has put in us, that should be glaringly obvious to people that we encounter every single day. Even people who are disagreeable, even people who persecute us. Our very lives should point to Christ and His cause for this world in everything that we do. The fact is, if we say we believe in the cause of Christ above all other causes in this world, if we say we do, then why is making disciples not the number one priority in our daily lives? Well, maybe it is. Maybe that is what drives you every day. I don't know. But if not, well, maybe you don't actually believe what you think you do. Okay, because all throughout Scripture, certainly we're told to care for the poor, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, to help those in need, yes, without question. And yet, when Jesus spoke, he was crystal clear about what was most important. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 8, 36 through 38. You see, there is no other cause as important as sharing the gospel with other people for that is the only offering we have which is eternal. Which is why when Jesus was leaving one town for another and the people tried to stop him from going, he said, I must, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Luke 4.43. You see, as Christians, we have a mandate to share and to defend the gospel. In fact, Jesus told us that we must actually die to ourselves for this cause alone, not for the endless causes of this world. He said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for what? For my sake and the gospel's will save it. Mark 8.35. So look, I, I'm not telling you I'm not telling you to abandon the causes of this world. Of course not. If, if you want to give uh, to your local school programs, community projects, clean water initiatives, uh, relief organizations, on and on and on it goes, you should. In fact, I do. That should be part and parcel with being a Christian in this world. But listen... If you give more time and money and resources and energy and attention to any other cause than spreading the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you cannot rightfully claim to believe that his cause is greater than all others. That's what the Israelites did. They gave lip service to God, but when it came right down to it, they believed in the cause of the Philistines more than the cause of God himself. And in the process, they missed out on being a part of what God was doing. Okay, the, the desire to be accepted and approved of in popular culture can be a very powerful motivator for why people, even Christians, do the things they do. I know that myself. But if you truly are a Christian then you do not belong to this culture. You understand, you belong to Jesus Christ and his church. And you cannot live the life, you cannot live the life that Jesus Christ modeled for us, the life that we as his followers are all, every one of us called to live. You cannot truly live that life and never experience any hostility or mistreatment or discrimination from other people. In fact, the very name Christian was not chosen by Jesus or his disciples. You know that, right? They, they never chose to call themselves that. No, it was the secular society, the local unbelieving culture in Antioch in Acts 11 who first gave them that name and by all indications it was meant to be a slur, a derogatory name for those who followed the teachings of Christ. You see... If you're going to live the life that that name Christian describes, then you're going to live a life that is inevitably counter to our culture. You're going to live a life that at times will be in tension with the world around you. 
A life that will demand you to actively spread and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ above every other cause in your life. Which means you will inevitably be hated by some. You will inevitably be persecuted by others and at times even rejected by other people. Even some people who are close to you. But listen, when you live your life that way, every day, day in and day out, choosing to live as a Christian, choosing to live as Christ lived, when you make the choice to live that way every single day of your life, a life that is submitted to the supremacy of Christ above all others and dedicated to the cause of Christ before all others. I'm telling you, people who are desperate for a change in their lives, and trust me, there's a world all around us full of them. People who are longing for something more powerful than they can find in this world and something more meaningful than what they can pursue in this world. Those people will come to you. Why? Because your life is different. They will come to you because your life is counter to what they see everyone else living everywhere else in our culture. They will come to you and they will ask you, what do you believe? And then when you tell them you're a Christian because of the way you've lived your life out in front of them, those words will actually mean something. Let's pray.